Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, politics, and culture in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and creep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic reads House Rules. After the Depression of 1873 and the Democratic retaking of the House of Representatives, the Gilded Age became a time of intense partisanship and congressional gridlock, with neither party able, until the victory of William McKinley in 1896, to maintain united government for very long. In both the House and the Senate, the losing side made use of a wide variety of of procedural tools to gum up the works and effectively kill or endlessly stall legislation and action they didn't like. Until one man named Thomas Brackett Reed, who had both used these tools and complained about them, had enough, and turned the House into a truly majoritarian legislative body, with a minority merely watches. Why did he do it? Who opposed it and why? And what can we learn from his actions today? With me to discuss these questions is Professor Robert Klotz of the University of South Maine, author of Thomas Brackett Reed, the Gilded Age speaker who made the rules for American politics. Robert, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure's all mine. So let's start with the background. What was... um, the house where Reed spent pretty much his entire political career like uh, from the end of the Civil War until uh, Reed entered the House of Representatives? How was legislation passed? Uh, How hard was it to get the laws or budgets passed uh, before he came in? Uh, Certainly uh, during that period there were many opportunities for filibustering, which at the time was a term used for all methods of delay instead of the way we use it today. At that time, filibustering was primarily done through one of two ways, either dilatory motions, just motions to waste time, let's adjourn, can we adjourn at three o'clock, four o'clock, or uh, what's called the disappearing quorum, uh, in which uh, members were present in their seats But because of the practice of the time, uh, they weren't counted unless they chose to respond to their names. Uh, And so what would happen was it looked like there's a quorum there because people are sitting at their desks. But then when it came time to call their names, they didn't respond, so they weren't counted. You didn't have a quorum. It had disappeared. You don't have a quorum. You can't do business. So going in and through his early years in the House, uh, there were just many opportunities to filibuster. Uh, same thing, of course, was going on in the Senate as well, through dilatory motions and disappearing quorum. Uh, and so Congress was having a difficult time uh, getting things done. It was also 
a time of divided government. Uh, again, there was in Reed's first years, again, it was divided government was routine. And you have, of course, the Gilded Age with a lot of, kind of real problems uh, facing people, deflation and reduced life expectancy, some economic transformation. And so with all these kind of challenges, uh, Congress was, was having difficulty doing some, some basic things because of the inability to overcome uh, filibustering. And so that's where things stood when he became speaker in December 1889. Okay, so um, as you describe in your book, uh, Reed found himself uh, a man of the Republican Party um, with the House seesawing between the Republicans and the Democrats. Sometimes they were in the majority, sometimes they were in the minority. And as you describe, he basically seemed to hew towards whatever was advantages for the party. So when they, they, when they were in the minority, he made full use of the tools you're mentioning, uh, the disappearing quorum, dilatory motions, and so forth. Um, and where they, when they were in the majority, he was at least starting to tweak and think about uh, removing or bypassing uh, some of these rules. And I wonder, in your opinion, was this a trial and error process, or did he, or did he, at some point before he became speaker? just come to the conclusion, okay, when I have the power, these these tools just need to go. I think it, it was, you know, he didn't see everything perfectly through, but when he was first appointed to the Rules Committee in 1882, I think that was when it started to get a bigger picture in mind, you know, and then it wasn't sort of, I mean, maybe trial and error in the sense of making small steps uh, over time. Uh, and then waiting for a larger step. So, you know, in 1882, they, they don't allow filibustering on contested election cases. And then you just kind of slowly move forward, uh, testing the House to, to see how much uh, majoritarianism uh, would be allowed. So I really, I really dated to that being on the Rules Committee because before that, you know, he, as you said, he was perfectly happy to use all of the tools that were available to him. And, you know, he was very strategic and experienced and, and did use them well. Okay, so he's slowly but surely moving towards majoritarianism and he's made speaker in 1889 uh, with a unique situation where the Republicans gain united government even though the president did not actually win the popular vote, he won the electoral college vote. So it's kind of a very um, vulnerable, uh, easily delayed uh, majority. So there's kind of pressing for time. What would you say, if say Reed had become a speaker in 1889 and the Republicans had more of a birth, do you think that Reed would have felt just as much a need to say, okay, we need to make the House majoritarian? Or do you think that the structural factors really played a decisive role here? I think the structural factors did play a decisive role. Uh, even if the Republicans had a, had had a larger majority in the House than they did, uh, again with the, the ability to filibuster, even a, a much smaller Democratic Party could have uh, stopped them. Uh, if you know the, there were a Democratic president, maybe things w would have been uh, less 
critical to him, right? This this first opportunity for unified government for Reed after the 1888 election, which, as you said, was won by uh, Benjamin Harrison, who did not win uh, a popular majority, but did win in the Electoral College. Uh, the Republicans also got fewer votes overall in the House, but their votes were better distributed, and they actually split the Senate that year. So they had this unbelievable situation where you had your first unified government in years, and it was based on uh, an election in which they really hadn't gotten a majority in any of the uh, branches of government. Um, so I'm curious, in this unique situation, uh, what did Republican leaders uh, in the Senate think? Did they think that Reid had gone mad and that, thank goodness, the Senate uh, is uh, stay, staying the same? Or did they say, hmm, maybe he has a point after you know, a decade and a half of uh, getting so little done? I think they definitely said, hmm, I think Reid has a point. Uh, and it, it kind of all centered on one piece of legislation, the Federal Elections Act, uh, to provide more federal supervision of elections, uh, where, particularly in the South where there was voter intimidation. And at that time, that would, it would have helped the Republican Party. Uh, Reid estimated that it would have given them 20 more votes in the House. In any case, the uh, Republicans in the Senate, uh, specifically a, a senator named George Hoare, had sought support from his colleagues to change the rules. Uh, for a Reed-like solution. Uh, he believed that he had uh, enough, well, he had enough signatures and informally, uh, but by the time they got back after the election, uh, he had lost support, probably for the underlying legislation, uh, but also it fell, uh, the rule change uh, also fell under. So it was, it was reasonably close uh, to happening in the Senate as well. That's interesting. So it was close, but it fell through, and the Senate uh, and the Senate remained uh, much more, uh, much more uh, broad consensus based than majoritarian. Um, but I would like to note, uh, continuing reading your book, uh, that later on, uh, when uh, Reed uh, first. Uh, his party first ended up very much in the very small minority after the uh, 1890 uh, congressional election, excuse me, and then uh, bounced back, uh, especially under William McKinley. Um, as you describe it, uh, when Reed was speaker, he basically once again broke his own rules because there were majorities in favor of things he didn't like like uh sil like uh, pat uh like more free coinage of silver and especially uh what led him to break with the republican party uh things like enthusiasm for war with spain over cuba and the annexation of hawaii where he constantly did everything he possibly could to thwart the will of the majority and it really makes me wonder how much was Reid really interested in procedurally making the House uh, a majoritarian body? And how much was it about it's the issues that matter to me? And if I don't like the issues, I will do everything possible to stop them. And if I do like the issues, I will do everything possible to promote them. Yeah, that's a, a tough one to answer. Uh, I, I do think uh, the, the principle of majority uh, 
was, was heavier for him, uh, but he also believed that some of the issues you described uh, with respect to how the United States was governing uh, the territories that it acquired as a result of the Spanish-American War, uh, he believed that was a huge issue too, that is kind of fundamental to democracy. So that, that conflict, I think, was, was difficult for him, uh, no doubt. Uh, and as you say, he was certainly uh, not just in the minority in the House, uh, but even in a huge minority in his party on, on some of those key issues uh, during that period. So he leads this revolution and he eventually retires uh, and leaves his mark on the house. Um, but as you note in your survey in the book, um, it's not entirely clear that the house really stayed the course in terms of Reed's uh, approach. It seems like his leadership was particularly needed. So for instance, his successor, Joseph Cannon, managed to run the house uh, very strongly, but he eventually faced a revolt. So, and as you note as well, uh, in, the, in the 1930s to the 1960s, uh, there was enough of a majority in the house to basically force if not back to the days of disappearing quorum and dilatory motions, at the very least, uh, much more of a broad uh, conservative coalition kind of consensus-based legislation rather than uh, majoritarianism. So would it be more correct to say that Reed didn't necessarily determine how the House is forever from what he did, but rather he created a legitimate option, which if the party is strong enough, they enforce, and if not, then they don't. I, I think that the political science uh, findings kind of show that, that those read rules in place uh, do have kind of a permanent uh, effect as long as the leaders choose uh, to use them. Um, leaders, of course, have, have, have ability to make different choices, but, but they have made the, the choice to follow the read rules, and, and the ones who are doing well obviously know how to use the read rules well. The conservative coalition, uh, even the people on the rules committee at the time, uh, Representative Bowling, he looked at it as kind of a failure in, in the way the Democratic Party was working at the time, rather than some inherent criticism of the read rules, which actually Bowling likes. Uh, at the same time, that he's uh, you know not able to follow them because of the peculiarities of the Democratic Party in, in that conservative coalition era that you mentioned. Fair enough. Um, so if I may ask about the, the, the repercussions for today, especially uh, as people debate strongly about Congress and how to maybe make things easier or to maybe make things harder. Um, on the one hand, Reed's rules definitely got rid of a lot of uh, silly and unnecessary delaying actions. But there is something to be said, and especially you see it in the Senate and people who still defend the filibuster, such as myself, say that if you're going to craft legislation, if you're going to enact policies, if you're going to uh, pass, except for reconciliation, if you're going to largely pass budgets that affect such a large, diverse, federated country with different needs, uh, there is something to be said for arguing to force or try and give the minority the option to try and force a broader consensus, even if you have to compromise. Uh, and Reed's rules, while it allows the majority to legislate, also 
gives the minority pretty much zero incentive to ever compromise on anything. Um, is, the, is that really worth the cost? Uh, that's challenging uh, question to answer. Can, uh, if anything, my book does uh, have an underlying idea of the importance of compromise. Uh, but the, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, it is certainly uh, very little that the minority can do. I mean, you mentioned the ramifications for today. I mean, tomorrow, uh, what was it, yes, last night, uh, the House Rules Committee uh, set the rule on the uh, inflate, what was co what's called the Inf Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is like three hours, uh, and, you know, basically to, to either approve or disapprove of the Senate bill. Uh, the ramifications for today is we just kind of accept the world that, that re, the re-rules give us. Uh, there's very little comment on uh, the fact that there's only going to be, what, three hours of discussion on whatever $700 billion. Uh, that's, that just happens all the time. We just accept it. Uh, so those ramifications uh, are there, and you know, we are, we'll see them tomorrow. Well, and we saw them yesterday. Okay. Um, the other question that came to mind uh, when I was reading your book, which, by the way, is really very interesting. It's probably one of the best introductions I've, I've read to congressional procedure and why it matters. Um, there is a constant debate regarding democratic thought, and I'm sure it is discussed in political science as well, is the question is, what is more important? in a political leader, whether it's a parliamentary leader or a national leader or a chief executive? Is it that they are personally virtuous or that they are a virtuoso? They are incredibly skilled at what they do and it really doesn't matter how good they are in their personal life. You see this in, in debates, uh, not just today, but uh, even before. The question is, do I want someone who's upstanding and really inspirational? Or do I want a hatchet man? Do I want my SOB who gets things done rather than just giving real speeches? Where would you place um, Reed on that virtue virtuoso spectrum? I haven't thought about that spectrum. Uh, I thought actually more about the intro to uh, your series on the Gilded Age, the villains versus heroes uh, spectrum. Uh, is definitely definitely more of a hero than than villain, uh, but certainly a very skilled uh, at what he did. I mean, it's part of why he, I mean, there were so many potential pitfalls when you're we're going through this massive transformation over you know, four days, but also weeks and months and years. Uh, that he, the skills that he built. Uh, did matter, and if you if you weren't on top of things, you could have definitely uh, had problems, and, and might not have been successful in, in, in doing that. Um, certainly, uh, he, as, as far as I could tell, in t twenty years of research, um, tried to be personally virtuous, uh, and you know. When you read uh, about his uh, his life, his personal life, uh, he he tried to, he he sincerely believed in, in the policies that he pursued. Uh, he certainly didn't get rich uh, while he was in Congress. He, 
and it's kind of, I, I think of him as kind of a symbolic of some of the Gilded Age, like for being rich, right? Because he's, uh, you know, he, wants to, he wants to do well, but, you know, he, he's stumbling around. He, he does a consulting fee to try to do some land, but it fails. He's still trying to get his expenses paid years later. He's always angling editors to, for a little extra money for the articles that he's writing. And he gives his money to his friend, is, is his investment advisor, loses most of it through his friend uh, mis, uh, misallocating his money. Uh, and finally, of course, that when, once he retires from Congress, he does cash in being a, a lawyer for Standard Oil and executives and, and others. Uh, but he, 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 he certainly, as far as I can tell, uh, really valued both. I mean, he, he did want to be personally virtuous uh, as understood at, at the time, and uh, also he was very skilled at, through the experiences that he built up over time, and is just generally smart, quick-witted person. Okay, that so that uh, I think uh, is a nice uh, wrapping up. It gives us a very good uh, um, survey of a man who revolutionized uh, American federal and legislative politics uh, and gives us a lot of food for thought for today, especially in this interview and in your book. Professor Klotz, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome.